SBS Radio. Now it's time for the latest developments in science and technology with Wiradjuri Woman and Science and Technology Editor Ray Johnston. Welcome to Night TV Radio, Ray. Thanks so much for having me. We start with this story showing that health practitioners need help to offer support for domestic violence victims. Yes, so this is a study that's come out uh, from the Medical Journal of Australia, actually. And they're saying that health systems, they play a key role in addressing gender-based violence, particularly domestic and sexual violence, but they haven't been given adequate resources to be able to respond in a way that benefits victims and survivors and children. And gender-based violence, it includes physical, psychological, sexual or economic behaviour that causes harm for reasons associated with someone's gender. And Australian numbers show that one in six women and one in 17 men have experienced domestic violence, with sexual violence occurring against one in six women and one in 25 men. And notably, Indigenous women's experiences are 35 to 80 times the national average. And victims and survivors, they're more likely to access health services like a general practice or an Aboriginal community-controlled health service than any other kind of professional help. So health practitioners, they're in a really good place to be able to identify domestic and sexual violence and provide a first-line response and then be able to refer people on to support services. So it is essential for practitioners to have skills to ask and respond to domestic and sexual violence, given that victims and survivors who receive positive reactions are more likely to accept help. But there are personal barriers for health practitioners bringing up gender-based violence with their patients, including feeling like they can't interfere because domestic and sexual violence can be seen as a private issue and that they don't have control over outcomes for victims and survivors, so they won't take responsibility because it's someone else's role. So there are barriers also for patients to be able to reach out to GPs, uh, including fears about consequences of disclosing, like children being removed, or judgmental responses, confidentiality being broken, shame or even an awareness that what they're experiencing is abuse. So the researchers for this report are saying that system support through committed leadership and specific policies and protocols, having clinical champions, specific infrastructure set up and quality improvement activities is essential to improve this situation. Uh, one that will be really very close to you, propelling women into STEM with the applications open for Elevate scholarships. That's right. The Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering has opened applications for their Boosting Women in STEM program. They call it Elevate, and the program is funded by the Australian government. And what it does is it awards up to 500 undergraduate and postgraduate scholarships to women in science, technology, engineering and maths over the next six years. And the program is all about encouraging women to pursue education and careers in STEM and it offers opportunities to extend qualifications and networks and professional skills and they're encouraging a diverse and broad range of girls and women to apply and to pursue education and careers in STEM because Diversity, it builds strength and it's crucial to the future of STEM innovation in Australia. 
and more women in discovery and innovation will build the resilience and, and capability and breadth of Australian research. So the Elevate program will also provide targeted professional development and mentoring and cross-sector networking that will make sure that anyone involved in the program will graduate with career-building knowledge and skills and connections and relationships. It's open to all students who identify as women, and they are particularly encouraging Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander women to apply. So if this sounds like you, anyone listening, uh, just look up the Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering Elevate program and give it a go. Yeah, we'll put the message out there because it's something that uh, we need to close the gap in that area. Absolutely, definitely. And uh, another discovery is about uh, non-native amphibians and reptiles. Uh, It's revealed that they are costing us billions of dollars. Absolutely. European researchers, they say that invading species of amphibians and reptiles, that's where the species spread beyond their native regions, that's what they consider invading, Uh, This includes cane toads, by the way. They're likely to have cost the global economy at least $24 billion between 1986 and 2020. And they say that these invasions can lead to damage, including the displacement or extinction of native plants and animals, as well as spreading disease and destroying crops. And the research team say geographically... Oceania and the Pacific Islands recorded 63% of the total costs. And these findings, they highlight the need for more effective policies to limit the spread of current and future amphibian and reptile invasions. And data for this was taken from all over the place, from peer-reviewed articles, from documents on on governmental, academic and and non-governmental organisation webpages, and also documents from biological invasion experts. And they're saying that the economic costs of amphibian and reptile invasions could be reduced by investing in measures to limit global transport of invasive species to stop them from travelling overseas and to also work out ways to enable early detection of invasions to to understand when they have been put in an environment that they shouldn't be. And this should reduce the need for long-term management of species invasions um, and the scale of the damage incurred as well. If they can get in there early, then we're not looking at undoing so much damage like we are with cane toads, for example. As those warnings at uh, the borders, uh, yeah, beware over what you're bringing in the country. It could actually cost us a lot of money. And now, a study of food served in a youth detention centre in South Australia gives insight into the role diet and menu choices play in improving or reducing their incarceration experience. Yeah, so this is a Flinders University study. And they looked at detainees aged between 10 and 19 years of age. And they found a general disappointment in the quality of the food. And this this is actually the first time that we've considered the extent of the lived food-related experiences of incarcerated children match the principles in the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child and the Charter of Rights for Children and Young People Detained in Training Centres. And what they did was they did interviews at the Kalana Tapa Youth Justice Centre that revealed many of the young people found their food service a, a punitive aspect of their car- incarceration, like like part of the punishment. 
And the food that was available included mainly high-carb and sweet snacks, like chocolate, biscuits, chips. And the main meals, they say, were not palatable and really lacking in fresh fruit and vegetables. So this study says that there needs to be a review of the food offerings in detention by a qualified dietitian and to get the kids involved in it as well. Get them involved in improving the quality and quantity and variety of the meals and snacks in the tuck shop. And then this can then branch into learning how to plan and budget and shop and cook and share a healthy meal, providing independent living skills and also maintaining connections to culture where appropriate as well. So along with the health benefits, food and food-related activities, they can be used to enhance cultural awareness and belonging and peer and social development, literacy, numeracy, problem-solving, sensory development and even coordination as well. So there's a lot of benefits here, um, you know, the least of which is you know, this additional effort would, at a very basic but very important level, ensure the rights of particularly vulnerable children and young people are met and their development and well-being are supported while they go through this really difficult time. Well, Ray, thank you very much for taking the time to bring to us developments in science and technology this week. Thank you so much for having me. Want to hear more stories like this? Listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. 